Father, we pray that you will indeed open our eyes and our minds to hear you, to see you, and open our hearts to receive your word. As we continue in worship, speak deeply into our souls. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. We live in a world in which um, the evil one has power to wreak havoc and to create destruction. Look around us, we see the effects of evil, the evil one's handiwork by picking up the newspaper, turning on a news program, clicking on a news website. It's all over the place. Indiscriminate violence, abuse, war, human beings being bought and sold like pieces of used furniture, gang warfare, people living without the, just the basic necessities of life, terrorism, ecological disasters. We see all of this and, and we read about it and, and we stand back and we wonder, what in the world can we do about it? What can we possibly do? about the systemic nature of evil and the evil one's influence on the world and about the acts of evil and the evil one in the world. And we ponder what it means for us to be the people of God in a world in which the enemy of God and the enemy of God's followers threatens and works toward destruction continually. Sometimes it's hard to know what to do. We feel so overwhelmed. And we're not alone. Since the moment sin entered the world, the evil one has been at war with God and his followers. And God and his followers have been trying to figure out how to respond, how to react. It's certainly the case for the Jews who have returned from exile to Jerusalem and are attempting to, in the 5th century, establish, reestablish the temple and and to uh, reinstitute the temple worship and to reclaim their place as God's people. And as they, as they seek to, to do this, and as they're trying to, to reinstitute their presence as God's people in Jerusalem, opposition is all around them. The nations around them threaten them and work against them and frustrate them in their efforts and And from what we can tell, the Jews seem to get pretty discouraged. And the work is grinding to a halt. They aren't quite sure what to do and how they should do it. Into their lives, the compiler of 1 and 2 Chronicles brings a word from God. In chapters 18, 19, and 20 of 1 Chronicles, take them back once again to David, 400 and some years earlier. And in these chapters, uh, the writer gives them a glimpse of what it looks like when the followers of God go to war for God. And I'm convinced that what the chronicler tells them is a vital word for us. 
it's important to understand right off the bat that God's enemy is committed to destroy all that's important to God. As citizens of God's kingdom, we're going to be attacked and opposed by those who give their allegiance to other kingdoms. We're going to be attacked and opposed by those who hate God, who hate Christ. Jesus himself said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. It's the way it is. It's the natural consequence of identifying with God's kingdom because the kingdom of God is antithetical to the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of the evil one who controls it. Now, we probably wouldn't dispute the presence of evil in this world, but something in us wants to believe that if we're the people of God, maybe we ought to not have to face as much of it. I mean, after all, we're God's people. Shouldn't that mean something for us? If we live right, if we treat people right, if we obey God, then we, won't have, we should have to face a lot of that stuff. When you look back at, at the, these passages, David is on a roll. You know, chapter 17, God has entered into covenant with him and with the people of Israel. And the attacks keep coming. And the result of one, as we see in chapter 19, is because David tries to do something nice. And people end up getting humiliated. And we try to do the right thing. And and so often it's misinterpreted. We're misrepresented. Things we say or do are misconstrued. We're vilified. Our motives are questioned. People turn on us. But that's what happens to people who are God's enemies in this world. People from God's enemies in this world toward God's people. The enemy will oppose us in every way possible in our relationships, our homes, our work, our habits, in the culture. And and in this world, the attacks are often systemic against the people of God, against those who claim citizenship in the kingdom of God. And we live in a fallen world where where the evil one has a great amount of power and freedom and he's doing everything possible to destroy this world. Peter says in his first letter, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And you know that your fellow believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. It's a part of what it means to be citizens of God's kingdom. And we ought to expect it. And it's hard. But it's overwhelming as all of this is, and as overwhelming as evil and the evil one's destruction is, the truth of the gospel is that no matter how, so, how the size or the power of the opposition, God is greater. God is greater. Chapter 20 tells of the Israelites fighting with the Philistines and their giants. And, you know, I don't know what's in the water in Philistia, but they seem to breed giants over there. I mean, you know, this guy's brother's a giant and, you know, you, they're all over the place. And then you got this guy with the, with the six fingers on his hands and the six toes. And don't you wonder sometimes about the details in Scripture that we get? There's so many things we think, boy, I wish I knew more about that. And then this comes along and think, okay, so he's got six fingers. Wow, great. It means something. He's big. You know, he, this, is, this is a huge opposition David's nephew takes him out. And when you consider the size of some of the armies that are fighting against Israel and the skilled warriors that they have in them, they're ganging up on Israel, you think, well, they don't have a chance. But they believe God is greater. And he is. It's, it's really the message of the New Testament. 
John writes in his first letter, you dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who's in you is greater than the one who's in the world. Jesus says in John 16, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Revelation says they will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he's the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And Jesus stands before Pilate and says, you do realize you would have no power if it weren't given to you from above. Despite the real power of the evil one, he's no match for God. I would argue that the key verses of these chapters are found in 18, 6, and 13. The Lord gave David victory everywhere he went. That's it. David didn't win these battles. The army wasn't so great that they won these battles. The Lord gave them the victory. It's God's doing. We sing a mighty fortress is our God. And as great as the enemy is, one little word, Jesus, fells him. This is the rallying cry of God's people through the ages that even on our best days, we're no match for the evil one and all of his heinous schemes, but God is. God is more than enough. It's not even close. But when you read this passage, the Israelites don't just stay back in Jerusalem and say, okay, God, these, the enemies are attacking us. We're going to sit here in our homes and you go fight them. They're in the battle. They get everything together and they go meet them and they go fight. David and the Israelite army head out to battle. On the one hand, and, and, and that's how God works with his people. He's the victor. He brings the victory, but he wants us involved in the battle. On one hand, God doesn't need us to be victorious, but on the other hand, God continually calls his people to action, to step into the battle. The question is, how do we do that? Do we take up swords and fight? Well, there have been people through the ages who have said, yes, that's what we do. It's never turned out very well. What do we do? I think our strategy has to be something different from the strategy of this world. It's something entirely different from the way everybody else fights battles. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, and the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's a spiritual battle. And even if we took up swords and guns, it's not going to do it. Jesus, in his interview with Pilate, says, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my guys would be on you in a moment. There's something about the strategy of God's people that needs to match the strategy of Jesus. And what is Jesus' strategy for overcoming the evil one in this world? It is completely different from any other kingdom. In fact, it is the strategy of God, of the kingdom of God, that sets it apart from all the other kingdoms. It is the strategy of God in Christ to redeem the world and to once and for all defeat the evil one. And it means that 
people who are citizens of the kingdom, if we want to be a part of the battle, we have to embrace the strategy of God. And the strategy of God is going to mean that we love like Christ, even when the world says that grabbing for our rights is the way to win. Jesus says, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. Paul writes, don't be overcome by evil. Instead, overcome evil with good. And we engage ourselves in the problems of the world as we join the battle, but we do it from a heart of love and compassion, not from a heart of hatred and vengeance. And we know from the scriptures, God cares about the attitude with which we enter the battle. But we do care. We, we, we care about and we work for the most vulnerable and we have compassion on the poor and neglected and we cater to those who have little means of repaying us. We speak truth and we get involved where injustice has a stranglehold. We protect those who are unable to protect themselves. Think about John Wesley who went morning after morning out to the mines to preach to the miners at five o'clock in the morning when everyone else ignored them. Think of William and Catherine Booth who were so burdened by the needs of the, of the of people of London that they started the Salvation Army and it became this worldwide movement. Inner city missions, hospitals, the abolitionist movement, the suffragette movement, all of these things were, were done out of hearts of love and compassion for people in need. And today, we work against things like the scourge of the drug trade and violence in our world and the lack of adequate education in our cities and in other places of the world. And we work to end the need for abortion. And we work to to bring about the things of God, the goodness of God into people's lives. We make a difference when we bring about change but only if it comes from a heart of compassion and love like Christ. Who when he looked on the multitudes and all of their pain and said they were like sheep without a shepherd, didn't say, forget them. They don't even know what they're doing. He had compassion on them. And he ministered to them. But I'm convinced that we're only going to be involved in loving like Christ instead of grabbing for our rights If we surrender like Christ, when the world says the power is the source of victory. So often, the church has chosen the same strategy as the world. And so, we give all of our energy thinking that if we just get the right people elected, or if we can just get the right legislation passed, or if we can just stop that movement, then things will be different and the kingdom will go forward. And sometimes it feels like that's working. But though it feels like a win, it's not. It doesn't advance the kingdom of God on on earth as it is in heaven. It often sends the message that God and his people are just as power hungry and just as rights driven and just as self-centered as everybody else. And then we cannot figure out why people don't want to hear about Jesus. The strategy of God is surrender, not rights. It's not about power. It's about humility. And the strategy of God is hard for us because it's typically less sensational, less visible, more time-consuming, more sacrificial than we desire. And that's why we tend to ignore it. You know, we want the battles to be solved immediately and completely. And we aren't all that thrilled about sacrifice and surrender. 
But in the economy of God's kingdom, victories are usually connected to sacrifice and surrender. And they tend to take time. You notice that David doesn't win all these battles in one moment. Three times in this passage it says, in the course of time, in the course of time, in the course of time. And it becomes in some ways a test of our faith in God. That he is in control and that his strategy for victory is still right and best. Our impatience with God very often leads us to exchange God's strategies for our own, even the world's. And so we picket and boycott and we threaten people and and we vilify our opponents. And I'm convinced that we do that, whether we want to admit it or not, because we aren't all that convinced that God's strategy really works. It's not fast enough. It's not deep enough. It's always been a struggle for people to accept. Isaiah 55 talks about God's plan for redeeming his people in the world. And it's not what Israel expects. And so God reminds them, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. And God goes on to finish that section in verse 11 and says, My word will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Again, this doesn't mean that God uh, approves of the abhorrent behavior so prevalent on the earth or that any of those things are insignificant or unimportant. They're extremely important and God hates what the evil one does. Jesus dies because sin is so heinous and so destructive. And if it weren't for that, why would Jesus come? But when we read the scriptures... When we look through the history of God's people, the only strategy that has stood the test of time and has been truly successful in the battles against the evil one is God's strategy. And he's calling us to surrender to this strategy. But the truth that we often avoid is that we will only be people who love like Christ and who surrender like Christ if we pray like Christ. It's in prayer that the power of God is deeply implanted within us. Because at its heart, prayer is opening our lives to God. So in Ephesians 6, after Paul describes the armor of God, he writes, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying. Pray for me that I may declare the truth fearlessly as I should. And as Jesus readies himself for the cross, where do we find him? In the garden, praying. Can I make this radical assertion that I'm still trying to learn, I'm still trying to practice, that prayer is our greatest enemy against the oppression of the evil one. And we are never more engaged in the battle. We are never more engaged in the battle than when we are praying. I heard Haddon Robinson talk once about uh, his, his thoughts about watching, reading about Jesus as he's preparing for the cross and he's praying in the garden. And he said, for me, prayer is preparation for the battle. But for Jesus, prayer seemed to be the battle itself. Where did he shed great drops of blood? It wasn't in Pilate's Hall. It wasn't when the soldiers were beating him. It wasn't when he was carrying the cross. It was when he was in the garden praying. 
And he said, I've looked at that and I've thought about it. And I think if I had been there in that agony, in that hour of agony and watched the way he suffered as he prayed, I, I think I would have been pretty discouraged. I think I would have said, if he's behaving that way now, when he's praying, what in the world is he going to do when a real crisis comes? It's too bad he can't be more like his disciples who are so peaceful, they're sleeping. And yet we know that when all is done, Jesus walks in victory to the cross and the disciples fall away. You know, we we tend to say, well, it's it's only prayer. It's just prayer. There's an old story of a of a town that had two churches and a whiskey distillery. And the church people, they hated the distillery. They hated what it did to the image of their town and what it did to the people. And they tried all kinds of ways to shut the place down, but they couldn't. And finally they decided they would have a joint prayer meeting and pray once and for all for God to do something about this distillery. So they got together on a Saturday night and they began to pray fervently. And as they were praying, a thunderstorm came up and a bolt of lightning hit the distillery and burned a thing to the ground. The next morning, in both churches, the sermon was the power of prayer. Well, the insurance company told the uh, owner of the distillery, who was an atheist, that they weren't going to pay for the damages because it was an act of God. And so he sued the two churches. (laughs) And they said, we didn't do it. And he went to court, and the, as, the, as the court opened, the judge said, this is one of the most perplexing things I've ever seen. On the one hand, you have this man who is an avowed atheist saying he believes in the power of prayer, and you have these faithful church members who say they don't. <laughs> it's, just, it's just prayer. We're not really doing anything. We're... We're just praying. We're doing the one thing. We're doing the real thing. We're putting all of this into the hands of God. And as we come and pray, we're declaring that God truly is greater than the evil one. And that God's plan and his strategy really does work. And we believe so much in it, we're going to practice it. We're not removing ourselves from the problems of the world. We're not trying to get away from everything. We're actually, more than anything else, engaging ourselves in them. Because when you boil it down, prayer is the battle. Prayer is the battle. And everything is won or lost in our prayers. And it's so important to see that that the battles are won by all of them. David isn't out there by himself fighting the whole Aramean army. And Joab isn't out there by himself fighting the Philistines. The whole army's out there fighting. And one of the things that I think is so significant about our prayer vigil is that it's something we are doing together. Yeah, most people are going to the prayer room by themselves, but we're doing this whole event together. And there is power in God's people coming together in prayer. So that when you walk into the room, you know you're just the next link in the chain of all the people who've been praying. 
And if you walk out, you're the link for all the people who will pray. And there's something about coming to that room, something about that place that unites us together. I've heard this from so many people and I've felt it myself. There is something significant about walking into that space, knowing all of the prayers that have gone before us and all the prayers that are yet to come. That connects us with one another and gives to us a power of prayer beyond just what I can do by myself. The encouragement of that and the grace of God in that and the power of God as we pray together. And that's why I brought over this kneeling bench today. You know, we've been talking since we began First Chronicles about this really being focused on, on reminding us that God is the king and how we live as citizens of the kingdom. And this throne, this chair, represents God's kingdom and that he sits on the throne. And the tree reminds us of all the genealogies and the people who've gone before us and will go after us that are in this stream of citizenship. And the heart reminds us that citizens of God turn their hearts to God. That's what makes us citizens. And this cape reminds us that when we turn our hearts to God as part of his kingdom, we can do some heroic things. And the hard hat with the balloon on it reminds us that worshiping God is an awesome thing and yet is an amazing event of celebration. And the little prisms remind us that when we worship God, we go out to share his light and to be vibrant colors for him. And the harness that we pray bold prayers in his presence, they help us climb amazing heights And the kneeling bench reminds us that we come and we pray. We pray to the king. And when we pray to the king, great things happen. When we come together. The book Red Moon Rising has been an amazing inspiration for me about this 24-7 prayer movement. Many of you have read the book. If you haven't, I encourage you to do so. We have it in our church library. There is a story in the book about a guy named Paul who came into one of the 24-7 prayer meetings with long matted hair, huge muscles, and stood up to speak and to share with the rest of the group. He talked about his sister who has anorexia. He said she's 26 years old, she weighs 70 pounds. And as he explained more of her condition, he says she isn't a Christian, but she does just, her whole life just seems to be taken from her. Everything, her womanhood, her, her future, her dignity, her life. Everyone grew silent as he, as he shared his story. He said, I'm here to confess something to you. I don't even pray for her. And I've been asking myself, why not? Is it because I don't care? No, I care deeply for her. Is it because I don't believe in prayer? No, I'm fully committed to prayer. The reason I don't pray for my sister is because it's just too painful. To pray for her is to think about her situation. And it means identifying with her and feeling her pain. And so I find it easier just to forget the whole thing and pretend it's not happening. But God's been challenging me to feel my sister's pain. Because that's what it means to intercede for her. 
And I believe God is challenging us as a movement of young people to dare to feel the pain all around us. To move from praying for people from the comfort of our own salvation to interceding with people from a position of need. And he said, here's the question. Will we allow the things that break God's heart to break our hearts too? It'll mean more tears, more listening. It may even be the reason why so many of us struggle with our own personal burdens. Because God's allowing us to feel the pain and to be weak and broken so our prayers have power. And he says intercession means weeping for the earthquake victims in the news and for the anorexics and the drug abusers and the sexually abused and the friends who don't know Jesus. And God says that if we together will stand in the gap in this way, bridging the ravine from a hurting generation and a healing God, we'll see breakthrough. And we'll see a new level of effectiveness in prayer. And there will be power even in our pain. As he scanned the crowd, very few people wanted to even look at him. He said, it's a tough word, isn't it? Because we're so often told to trust Jesus for a problem-free existence. But what if the call to pray is to bleed as well as to receive blessing? Maybe we'll go to the prayer room and we'll run out of words and, and we'll just join the Spirit with praying with groans that words can't express. And maybe our, our prayers will consume us until we actually live out our prayers in prayerful action. But it begins with our prayers. And this is waging war for God. How different might our lives look if we committed ourselves to God's strategy instead of our own? How different might this church look? How different might our community look? How different might the world look if this little group of people committed ourselves to God's strategy for facing up to the evil one in this world. It seems kind of risky. And it goes against the grain of the normal way that we think. But it's really nothing more than just joining with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and getting ourselves on the side of the one we know has already won. Please pray with me. I suspect that most, if not all of us, can pretty quickly think of a situation in our lives or in someone else's life or in the world that where we see the evil one at work. I want to give us the opportunity this morning to begin practicing God's strategy. I'm going to go down to the altar to pray. And I would invite those of you who would like to join me there to do so. As together, we pray for God's power to be revealed through our prayers.
Father, we are acutely aware of the evil one's activity in our world. We wrestle with them in our personal lives. We know he's at work in the systemic problems of our world. We've come to this time of prayer to be reminded that you're still in control. You're greater. You are the almighty God. You're perfectly faithful. Your power is unlimited. You created all and you rule over all. And as looming as the problems of the world are, you are greater, period. And we claim and live in that promise today. Knowing this truth, we present ourselves to you and to your radical, perfect plan for overcoming the evil one. We pray that you would give us grace to love like Christ and to surrender like Christ and to commit ourselves to pray like Christ. Father, free us from the bondage of sin. Make us humble in your sight. We pray, Father, that you will defeat the evil one in all of the ways that he works in this world. And in this moment of silence, we pour out our hearts in prayer about the burdens that we feel today. Father, we pray for overcoming power and the sins with which we struggle. We pray for healing power. We pray for strength when temptation pulls us like a magnet toward what we know is poison to us. We pray for the world in which the evil one desires destruction. Heal all who live with shame. Give hope to those who are hopeless. Pour out love on the lonely and those who feel insignificant. Free the captives. Defeat those who would enslave anyone. Crush the enemy who attempts to infiltrate nations and schools and even the church. And use us to bring about your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Father, for every person who is kneeling here at the altar today, for every person seated, for every burden that's a part of our lives, we pray for your power to be revealed. And we pray, Lord, and we we declare that we're willing to be a part of your solution as you lead us and guide us. Make us people who are committed to your strategy, to your kingdom. Father, we offer our prayer 
in the name of Jesus Christ. The one who died for us, who in power rose from the grave, is in heaven with you and is coming back in final victory. It's in his name and in his power that we pray. Amen.